0: everyone and welcome back to another episode of Infectious Dialogue, a new name but a very familiar podcast where we still discuss the stories of medicine and the people behind them. My name is Gurinder and I'm Mike. On today's episode we're going to be discussing human trafficking in Canada. We're going to chat about what human trafficking is, how we can identify victims of human trafficking and how a healthcare provider can work with victims. Our interviewers Daniel and Cynthia had the pleasure of sitting down virtually and talking to Crystal Snyder, A social worker who is the program manager at YWCA Niagara region. We hope that all the future healthcare practitioners in our audience will take some valuable cues away from this episode because statistics have shown that most human trafficking victims interact with the healthcare system during their victimization and healthcare workers may be an essential lifeline. We hope you enjoy the interview and learn more about a topic that is not often discussed in Canada.
1: Hello everyone, Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of um, the ID Podcast. My name is Daniel Borens, you might have heard me before. Um, I'm a recurring host for the ID Podcast. And with me today, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Cynthia, Cynthia, how are you doing today?
2: Good, thank you.
1: Fantastic, okay, so we have an exciting episode today. And just uh, want to let our listeners know that we're going to be talking about human trafficking today, um, which is, can be a distressing subject, so just wanted to give you a heads up for what we're going to be discussing. And we're very excited to have a fantastic guest with us today. So we are joined with Crystal Snyder, who is a program manager at YWCA Niagara Region, where she works um, in anti-human trafficking and works with women and homeless individuals um, in skills development and housing support. And she'll probably be able to explain a bit more. So, Crystal, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's our pleasure. So, I guess first, Crystal, can you please tell us a bit about your background and, I guess, how you got into working in anti-human trafficking services?
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: So um, I started my work in social services in 2007, I worked for the uh, Niagara Sexual Assault Center because I'm from the Niagara region. And so in 2007, part of my role was to go into hospital if somebody had been assaulted and work with um, the sexual assault nurse examiner and provide emotional support, practical support and advocacy to victims of sexual violence. So. It was really um, working there that I started to recognize certain ways in which uh, people were showing up that that kind of led me to think, you know, there's more to this. And at that time in 2007, there was not a lot of conversation around human trafficking in the country at all. So I stayed with the Sexual Assault Center for a few years, um, just kind of keeping, keeping my eye on how things might be looking different, and I'll explain kind of more how that showed up in that setting later. And then in 2011, I started with the YWCA working in shelters. I worked in shelter for a few years before working in skills development and before uh, opening a drop-in for women engaged in survival sex work. And then after the drop-in opened, um, we started to ask questions around human trafficking and what people's experiences were with trafficking. And we found that I think it was 85 percent of those who were working on the streets of St. Catharines as sex workers were initially trafficked as young girls. So then I um, started to do some programming and training with the YWCA and develop anti-trafficking services. And really over the last probably six or so years anti-trafficking has been on the agenda. It's been on the political agenda, agenda and it's been talked about a little bit more frequently. I'm not currently at the YWCA, um, so I'm on a leave of absence during the pandemic, um, but have started my own consulting company uh, to, to talk further about anti-trafficking.
2: Um, congratulations on starting your own company. I'm sure you're doing great work. For those of us who don't know much about human trafficking, could you kind of explain what it is
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So human trafficking was identified um, at the UN so it is um, the UN definition talks about the act means and purpose. So human trafficking is a gross human rights violation where somebody will lure or groom a person and use threats or force or violence for a purpose of exploiting them. So. Uh, In Canada, we hear a lot about sex trafficking, so that is, you know, somebody forcing somebody to work in the sex trade and take their money and exploit them. In the States, you hear a lot more about labor trafficking, which we'll talk about those different types. Uh, Labor trafficking and sex trafficking in Canada have a bit of an overlap, and you might see that in strip clubs where somebody is working, but then they're also being sexually exploited. There's also organ harvesting, uh, which we don't talk too much about in Canada. It's not on the rise uh, that I'm aware of in Canada, but you might hear about it in other countries where, um, you know, folks may take a victim and perform surgery on them to, to harvest their organs and sell them. I will say that I think if we privatize healthcare, we move to privatize healthcare in Canada, we would see actually organ harvesting, organ trafficking go up. Uh, There's also forced marriage is another form of trafficking. And I think total there are 26 identified forms of human trafficking. But really the the main point to what makes a human trafficking charge is the way that somebody comes in contact and lures a victim. The fact that that person can't leave or they feel that they couldn't leave the situation. And the purpose is to exploit them for labor or money or to make some kind of benefit from, from exploiting them.
1: Well, that's really interesting. I had no idea about all the different types of human trafficking. I also had no idea of how prevalent, I guess, human trafficking is in Canada. I always just pictured it as something occurring in other countries, but not in in our country. So Mm -hmm. I was wondering, would you be able to maybe clarify what is the prevalence of human trafficking in Ontario and then also in Canada?
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, So again, I will mention that, labor trafficking is not often talked about in Canada right now. What we hear a lot about is sex trafficking. And with sex trafficking, much like other forms of sexual violence, it's underreported. And there's a multitude of reasons for that and a multitude of barriers for reporting. I know that the stat, and I think it's uh, Public Safety Canada's stat that says Out of all of the trafficking that happens in Canada, 66% comes through Ontario at one time or another. So sometimes you'll hear about the 401 corridor, the highway, and that being a major pathway for trafficking to happen. In Canada, and I think for a lot of people, like you said, Daniel, like, you know, I always thought it was something that happened in other countries and other places. And so a lot of times folks will think that trafficking when it is happening in Canada, is happening and it's foreign nationals or you know somebody is brought over here to be trafficked. So it would be international trafficking. And those cases do happen, but what we know is that actually 90% of trafficking cases in Canada reported are Canadian born individuals. So that's domestic trafficking. The bulk of human trafficking in Canada is actually domestic trafficking.
2: So could you tell us about a bit more about who might be a victim of human trafficking here?
3: Yes, so um, there's a bunch of different research around victimization of human trafficking and again uh, you would find mostly information about sex trafficking, but I think the vulnerabilities stay the same. Any marginalized individuals are going to be at highest risk for trafficking. So labor, forced marriage, sex trafficking, those all happen because of inequity. Trafficking is a symptom of inequity. We have victims because of oppression and they get preyed upon. So, When you have groups like LGBTQ2S plus folks, you have folks who are differently abled, you have women, um, people of color, women of color, uh, particularly indigenous women and girls. So we do know about missing and murdered indigenous women. I think it's like 60% of sex trafficking victims are indigenous women and girls. So marginalized communities and oppressed communities are at the highest risk for trafficking and most likely to be vulnerable. What also happens is the more high risk you are and the more intersex um, that operate in your life. So maybe you are racialized, um, you have a disability and uh, you're a female you're gonna be less likely to report human trafficking, but more likely to be trafficked because we know that the systems of reporting are not safe systems for a lot of marginalized individuals.
1: Does that make sense? Yes, that does make sense. So I guess uh, just to follow up on that question, why are some of the uh, reporting systems not safe for some individuals versus others?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think we, you know, right now we're hearing a lot about it with the Black Lives Matter movement, and we're hearing a lot about systemic racism, um, systemic oppression, colonization, I mean, human trafficking of Indigenous women and girls is directly related to colonization. And so when you have systemic racism, that plays out day to day, then of course, somebody who is having an experience of trafficking isn't going to feel safe to maybe interact with the systems. And if they do, those systems may not be appropriate to support, whether it be with language services, culture, uh, different access to cultural needs and things like that.
2: So just keeping that in mind, is there, we're going to talk about healthcare a bit later, but What can we, as Canadians and people in Canada, do to support these people?
3: I think it should be person-centered, person-driven. We know that these kind of cookie-cutter models of how to support any one person is not effective. I think you can have a loose outline of, of how we'd like to see supporting people but what one person needs, another may not. So I think it's about collaborating with um, a variety of supports that are available that somebody would be able to access if that's what works for them. A lot of times, like right now, you have government money uh, that's available to survivors of trafficking through uh, victim services, but there are challenges with not having funds to be allocated to things like, I don't know, let's say boxing. Somebody wants to box and that's their way of healing. Well, if, if the person who's teaching boxing isn't a registered social worker, then, then the survivor can't access that fund um, for that purpose. So I think it is, is not having such rigid barriers in terms of access so that folks, folks can choose what works for them. And I think, uh, I guess to answer what what folks can do in community, it's it's about becoming aware of those things and advocating for those things.
1: Before we move on to talk more about the different uh, services that are offered for individuals who may have experienced human trafficking or been a victim of it, I think I just want to learn a bit more about what the human trafficking is. So would you be able to tell us a bit more about who are the traffickers who are the people who might be doing the trafficking
3: yeah that's such a great question um i always say when i'm presenting information around trafficking is there isn't any one way that a trafficker looks so you can't walk into a room and pick out a trafficker and say, I think definitely this person's a trafficker. I have met folks that can do that and those folks are survivors, survivors of human trafficking, have an innate alarm that they've had to develop to be able to uh, say, I think that this is what's going on with this person. But I think deconstructing the idea of what trafficking looks like in community, I think we hear a lot of media messages that, that makes us feel that Traffickers are, you know, young boys who are 24 and under. That does happen. There are there are youth who are traffickers, but that's not exclusively who does trafficking. So sometimes it can be a family member. So we talk about intergenerational trafficking, where mom and dad were trafficked and then they became traffickers. So sometimes it can be a family member, an uncle, a close friend of the family that could be doing, uh, could be trafficker. Sometimes it's the boss of somebody. It's their workplace that they're being trafficked out of. We know that international students are at very high risk for human trafficking because of legislative gaps that create these conditions for trafficking to happen. So it could be a teacher. It could be somebody involved in the school system that is the trafficker. So I guess Really it could be anybody and that's one of the reasons why we need to be aware of how to do interventions because sometimes we can say things to clients uh, when the trafficker is present and that can be quite dangerous.
2: In terms of human trafficking, a word that comes up a lot is grooming. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a bit more about how a trafficker is able to recruit people or I guess groom people? Yeah, absolutely. So
3: uh, grooming or luring is something that we hear a lot about in community. And there's four stages to human trafficking. The first stage would be this grooming portion. So traffickers are are master manipulators. And it's a, a huge industry for sex trafficking. I think it's that one trafficker can make $130,000 a year per girl, which is a huge amount of money. So they invest a lot of money in training and understanding how to lure Some signs that folks may want to look for with luring is, um, you know, that if it's a young girl and we're looking at sex trafficking, that she's got this new boyfriend or friend who is buying her new gifts, who is telling her who she can and cannot hang out with, starting to isolate a little bit. Uh, Traffickers will find somebody who they think might be vulnerable, and they'll start to talk to them about, like, what are your needs? What are your hopes in life? What things do you want to achieve? And so they're gathering information so that later they can use that to say, you know, I can help you achieve those dreams. I know that you really wanted this. I can make that happen for you. Um, So they'll gather information about people's vulnerabilities in order to use that as a means of control later. And so I always tell folks, particularly working with teenage girls, that idea of if it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Relationships shouldn't be perfect. Um, So those would be red flags. There's a lot of resources available around healthy relationships online. And so I always think it's important for folks to understand what are healthy relationships and, and what would be red flags.
1: Well, I think it's important to know about some of the red flags to be aware of so thank you for addressing them i just thought of a i guess a follow-up question is um have you noticed that perhaps it has become easier for people to become victims of human trafficking in the age of social media where a lot of young women are meeting are meeting strangers online
3: I don't know if i would say easier trafficking like you often hear it as pitched as like the fastest growing crime in canada that's not true it's not growing any faster people are just more aware about it um so trafficking was happening long before social media i think it is definitely a pathway to give access a little bit quicker so some examples i've heard of is girls posting i don't want to say facebook because lots of youth don't use facebook but on twitter or or on some other app maybe instagram saying that they are not feeling pretty today and and that is a sign for a trafficker to go in and say you're gorgeous i'd love to meet you and so easily vulnerabilities are aired out uh, that i think traffickers have access to a lot quicker
1: that makes a lot of sense thank you so much Crystal for chatting with us so far about human trafficking, and giving us a good understanding of what it is. We're going to take a short break. And then when we return, we're going to talk more about human trafficking victims and how they interact with the healthcare system. So uh, we'll take a quick break and then join us in a few moments.
0: Hey everyone, if you enjoy listening to The ID Podcast and want to hear more from us, follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The ID Podcast. If there's a topic you'd like for us to cover in a future episode, please feel free to message us or send us a tweet. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the episode.
1: Alright, and we're back. So... Once again, um, I'm Daniel. I'm joined with my co-host Cynthia, and we're here with Crystal Snyder, and we've been talking about human trafficking. And now we're going to talk a bit more about how human trafficking victims interact with the healthcare system. So, I guess my first question, Crystal, is: Do, do victims of human trafficking come into contact with healthcare workers often?
3: Yeah, thank you. It's such a good question. Um, I, one one piece of research that I read out of the states was that 88% of victims of human trafficking have interacted with healthcare at one time or another during their captivity. What I'll I'll say though about my experience working with trafficked folks is that when they are accessing healthcare, because they are, it's because they really really need it. So. They're ending up in hospital, or in a merge, or in a doctor's office, or a, or a health clinic, because they absolutely need to access healthcare.
1: Okay, well, that's really unfortunate that that acute point is the first time that they might end up in a, in a healthcare setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering, do victims of human trafficking interact with healthcare workers um, more often than them contacting the police?
3: That's a great question. I think that that might be individualized based on the situation. My my gut is saying that if given a choice to have healthcare intervention or police present, traffickers and survivors would lean more towards healthcare. Um, some of the, the training that I do in my work is trying to develop the capacity for emergency services in, including fire and EMS on um, Identification and intervention because traffickers and survivors are going to want police far away. Um, so, I guess the short answer to that is yeah, I would say that, that folks would interact with healthcare before interacting and more often interacting with police.
2: For situations where they are able to present to a healthcare worker, what are things or signs that healthcare workers can look out for? Yeah,
3: that's a great question. So both for sex trafficking and for labor trafficking, things like um, being malnourished, um, not having access to identification or somebody else holding your identification. Specific to sex trafficking would be that you might have branding, which could be a tattoo or a mark on you. If you're working in healthcare and you see you know several and i use girls we do know that boys get trafficked as well but several people with the same tattoo then you might want to be aware that that could be branding and and the purpose of branding is to have a mark for other traffickers to know that you're owned by somebody else also with sex trafficking a lot of folks won't know where they've been recently so if you ask them you know where they've been the last 2 weeks they may not know what cities they've been to or what city they're currently in Um, With labor and sex trafficking, it's likely that you would have somebody else trying to answer the questions, but then not really have an understanding of the medical history of the patient that's presenting. For, For sex trafficking, another thing to be aware of is that she may use a different name, so like a street name, than what's on her identification. Uh, I do also want to say that not any one of these indicators conclusively would say it's human trafficking, but that it would be kind of multiple. Also, in healthcare, uh, what's really, really important, particularly in in emergency settings, would be uh, frequent flyers, and I'm doing that with air quotations. Um, you know, if you have folks that are coming in needing mental health support and they're extremely emotionally dysregulated, that would be a a big thing that I'd want to be aware of because we know that trauma really is the cause of a lot of mental health issues. So uh, not kind of the other way around.
1: Well, I think it's um, important to to hear about the different signs so that we can kind of, uh, as uh, healthcare professionals and for Cynthia and I, as medical students have a kind of an eye open, if we notice anything Um, like you mentioned, or unusual, just to kind of keep that in in our mind. So I guess um, because we are medical students and future physicians, I guess we were wondering how can medical students and healthcare professionals better practice harm reduction, like you were saying, uh, when working and speaking with someone who we are suspicious might be currently a victim of human trafficking or someone who was previously trafficked? So I guess, what are some harm reduction techniques we can use?
3: I love that question so much, and so I really appreciate it. I think uh, one thing that's always really important to recognize when somebody is being trafficked or has been trafficked, it's easy for us to go to a place of, I need to fix it. And I think then what often gets lost when we're stuck in this place of fixing is the recognition of the resilience that this person has because of their trafficking situation. So in terms of harm reduction, I think it's asking people how they have kept themselves safe and what's worked for them. The survivors of trafficking will have some techniques that they've already engaged in that help to keep them safe. Also, I know what's really important is sometimes, more times than not, focus may have substance use issues uh, as a result of their trauma. And it's that substance use or that substance that is keeping them, I want to say, emotionally leveled out enough. So I think it's really harmful to request that somebody leave a trafficking situation or be expected to heal from a trafficking situation you know too, too prematurely while also giving up the very thing that has helped them stay alive and kept them resilient uh, during their time of, of trauma. Um, so I really think what's important questions to ask particularly in clinic settings if somebody does disclose that they've been using substances is is trying to understand how those substances are working for them what it what is it that is working for them that uh, that keeps them using and sometimes we can understand then you know this person is is taking heroin because before they've come into the office because it's the heroin that's leveled them out emotionally enough to be in the office that they're in if that makes sense
2: yeah that definitely makes sense and I think it is something like we want to do. We always want to jump in and see how we can solve an issue when that maybe isn't the best option at the time. So we were wondering if you have any suggestions as to like what interventions like are helpful?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the the major one would be to create pathways or or responses or policies before you're in a situation where you're having this present in front of you and not knowing what to do. And the reason why I say that is because for a lot of survivors of trafficking, police is not the best option as we talked about earlier. So if each clinic or each different place that folks are working out of is aware of what the resources are that are available, you may have somebody who's being trafficked and if you ask them what it is that they need, well, their need might be housing. Like, I need a shelter in order to get away. So it's being aware of those resources and being able to offer them. Um, That can be tough if somebody is in the midst of their trafficking and if a trafficker is present or nearby. So the number one recommendation from survivors was just that somebody ask, are you safe right now? And if then they answer no, uh, your you know, your clinic should be aware of what that procedure would be. The other piece, I think, is just to check our own biases, our own stuff when we go in so that we can be there with somebody um, and just ask, what did they need right now? Other small interventions could be trying to rebook an appointment or a follow-up. Survivors may not come back, but if you've helped them to feel safe in that moment, they likely will come back. So if you're able to book a follow-up appointment um, for whatever reason, that can sometimes be helpful. Other communities will also have different um, resources. So in Niagara, uh, there is an agency called YMCA. They make um, little packages of Band-Aids and inside of the Band-Aids are important numbers that, that somebody could call. So. The Band-Aid package can just get handed to the survivor as they're leaving um, and letting them know that there's information in there, but that they can keep it hidden so their trafficker can't find it. So there's, there's other practical things, um, but I really think a response policy beforehand is helpful.
1: Well, thank you so much, Crystal, for joining us today. Uh, this was an incredibly interesting discussion and definitely a discussion that we often don't have. Uh, So I hope I'm sure that our, our listeners really learned a lot from it. So I guess a final question is, is there anything else that you would like to add maybe to summarize what you've been talking about or if there's any other resources for people if they want to learn more about human trafficking that you would want to share?
3: Yeah, so particularly for folks in healthcare, there is an agency called, I think their website is, I know their website is healtrafficking.org. And that is based in the United States. The executive director is a doctor from Harvard Women's Hospital, and it is resources, all kinds of resources available to medical professionals around human trafficking. I will say it's heavy on the labor side, as we tend to see in the States, but still a really, really great resource. Uh, Here in Canada, there is a national hotline to end human trafficking. It's the Canadian Center to End Human Trafficking. You can Google them. Uh, They have some resources available, and what's really great about them is, if you have a survivor of human trafficking that's presenting and you're not sure what to do or what's available in their area you can call that number and they can usually um, help support on on what resources are around
1: thank you so much crystal we're going to uh put those links into the uh episode on our website we're going to put those links for people to look at as well so again uh crystal thank you so much for joining us today um i certainly have learned a lot thank you so much
3: Thanks for having me. I'm really grateful to to be able to share some of my knowledge. So thank you.
0: Wow, well, I certainly learned a lot about human trafficking from that interview and I can see why it's so important that we're made aware of this vast issue in Canada. I agree. Now we want to go back through our interview to do a fact check to help further explain some of the concepts that were mentioned in the episode. Now, thankfully, there isn't much to elaborate on because Crystal did such a great job of explaining things so clearly. I do want to make a note, however, of the prevalence of human trafficking in Canada. According to Stats Canada in 2018, police services in Canada had reported 1,708 incidents of human trafficking since the year 2009. However, as Crystal had mentioned, this is likely a large underrepresentation of how prevalent this problem really is in Canada. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast and learned a lot about human trafficking. If you're interested in learning more, we've linked some great resources in the show notes below, as well as on our website. Thank you so much to Crystal Snyder for joining us and educating us about such an important topic. If there's another topic you'd like for us to cover next, send us a message or tweet at us. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The ID Podcast. We want to also thank Daniel Borens and Cynthia Chan for interviewing Crystal Snyder, our guest today, as well as writing the episode. We want to thank Isabella for editing, and of course, the rest of the team. Naman, Lucy, Priscilla, Gurinder, and myself, Mike. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in to Infectious Dialogue, where we discuss the stories of medicine and the people behind them. See you next episode.